From Schwartz Media, I'm Elizabeth Coolass. This is 7am. A decision by state governments to hand responsibility for planning on sea level rise to local councils has opened up a war around science, influence and property values. Bronwyn Adcock on how the future of the Australian coastline will be shaped by disputes over climate change. This is episode one in a two-part series. Already this winter, some local councils have been forced to close popular beaches and dump tons of sand and rocks to protect buildings. A report on the effects of climate change on Australia's infrastructure calls coastal flooding the sleeping giant of risk to future prosperity. We're getting sea level rise, which will make it worse. We're getting uh, increases in the intensity of east coast lows. We're getting tropical cyclones coming further down the coast will make it worse. So it's a triple whammy. So, Bronwyn, how did you first come across this story? So, it's actually quite interesting the way I initially came across this. Some years ago, I was doing a story about homelessness in regional areas and I was sitting in on a local council meeting and towards the end of the meeting, it just happened that this issue was being discussed and I didn't know anything about it at the time. Bronwyn Adcock is a journalist. She wrote about climate change and sea level rise for The Monthly. But what I witnessed in that particular council meeting, this is a council meeting in the Shoalhaven, was some science being put forward where uh, there was a case to be made that sea levels were rising and this had to be considered. So I started contacting local community groups who had been involved in the issue and I started speaking to people. And then I came across Brett Stevenson and he was fantastic because not only was he an eyewitness in the sense and that he'd sat through so many council meetings and had a really good understanding of what had gone on, but he also had this background in environmental policy and had actually done a doctorate into coastal research. Hello. Hi, Brett. How do we find you this morning? What's happening in Shoalhaven? It's a bit um, overcast. Um, there's a prospect of a shower, perhaps a little bit later in the day, which would be very, very welcome because it's incredibly dry down here on the New South Wales south coast. Ah, OK. Well, I wish you a grey and rainy day, my friend. <laughs> Thanks very much. So, Brett, you're a sea changer. You moved to the coast in 2000. Tell me about how you became involved in the local council there. Well, it was probably in about 2000 and five or six, the council um, advertised saying that there were vacancies on a number of advisory committees to do with natural resources and floodplain management. I put my hand up for that. Dr Brett Stevenson lives on the New South Wales south coast. He's worked in environmental policy for over 20 years. The council also had a coastal committee for a while too, which I contributed to. And being on those committees, did you know that sea level rise was going to be an issue? Well, I guess... I always knew that it was going to be an issue somewhere down the track because of my background working in state government, but I guess it hadn't really been crystallised until it became increasingly clear that sea level rise was happening, that climate change is happening, and there needs to be some concrete policy responses to that. And Bronwyn, for you, when did government in Australia start dealing clearly with the issue of sea level rise and coastal property? So early this decade, around 2009, was I guess the first time there was a really strong acknowledgement that this was a major issue for Australia. Back then, there was a Federal Department of Climate Change. They did a major report and they said, look, on current modelling, and mind you, this is modelling that's over a decade old, somewhere between 157,000 and 240,000 
47,000 individual residential buildings are at risk of inundation by the end of the century. The figures that are used primarily by government were from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The likely figures they were talking about then was planning for a sea level rise of 0.4 metres by 2050 and 0.9 metres by 2100. That was a benchmark that was accepted by a lot of state governments. So New South Wales, for example, directed local councils to plan for those particular levels when passing new applications for housing. And to their credit, in 2009, the New South Wales government created uh, what were called the sea level rise benchmarks. And essentially, with those benchmarks set, councils were able to go and look at their own particular local circumstances and work out what the implications would be. So the New South Wales government sets these benchmarks for sea level rise and then it says to local councils, you must implement these benchmarks. How do the councils respond to that? Well, council as a whole responded very well, I think. That information was being reflected in the decision-making tools of council, which was a good outcome, and we were getting that sort of consistent approach up and down the coast. Council just ran with it and they put those figures into their policy-making tools and they got on with the job of doing it. So lots of councils began doing coastal management plans, starting to kind of think for the future like that. But what happened is that there was an enormous community backlash. And that's because these management plans affect individual homes and that affects the price that that property is worth. Absolutely, yeah, that's that's how it works. So they were extremely concerned about the impact that this would have on their property prices. So they were opposed to these new sea level benchmarks. A couple of property owners said, no way, this will affect our property prices. We can't do this. We can't do these planning benchmarks. We'll be right back. Need a reminder of what political leadership looks like? Australia's master of political satire, Jonathan Biggins, is back embodying the iconic Paul Keating, visionary, reformer and rabble-rouser. Due to overwhelming demand, one-man comedy The Gospel According to Paul is returning to the Opera House, on from the 4th to 23rd of June for its final term ever. Secure your tickets now at sydneyoperahouse.com for an unforgettable evening. For long-time editor Winnie Dunn, there were a few rules she followed when writing her debut novel. I really don't subscribe to writing for the sake of, you know, trauma dumping or getting your trauma out. That's what a therapist is for. Please, <laughs> please go see a therapist. We're very pro-therapy on yeah, this. Yeah, if, no, if that's what you're using writing for. I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's very therapeutic episode of Read This, I chat with Winnie Dunn. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So, Bronwyn, around 2010, there's this real acknowledgement from the federal government that sea level rise is going to be a problem for our coasts. Local councils start preparing management plans, but almost as soon as that happens, there's a backlash. And one of the driving figures is a man named Pat Aiken. Who is he? So... Pat Aitken was a man who, in 2010, was not really involved in any kind of local community politics or activism at all. In fact, he was looking forward to at least a semi-retirement. He was a, a casual TAFE teacher and a former bricklayer. Now, he'd bought a home in a little suburb called Davistown, which is on the edge of an estuary north of Sydney in New South Wales. This was where he imagined he was going to potentially retire to. 
But then his local council, which at the time was the city of Gosford, part of their planning for sea level rise, they would have done some new mapping and that included Pat Aiken's house. So he received this letter in the mail from his local council saying, guess what, your property is now considered to be in a coastal hazard zone. We don't know what that means at this point, but we're just informing you of this. Ten years ago, council was essentially acting on instructions from state government, which was to start planning for sea level rise. For lots of councils, this would have been the beginning of their planning process. So they would have been saying, informing residents that, look, your property is now in an area that we're going to have to consider what we do. But of course, once you draw lines and maps, I think that's when people really can get upset, irritated and try and decide to change things. And I guess that was just leaving the way cleared for a lot of local pressurising and for local agendas to come to the fore rather than, I guess, the, the broader collective wisdom they were very well organised, being really vociferously opposed to this kind of new sea level rise benchmark planning. Pat Aiken absolutely saw this as a black mark against his property. I mean, he more or less hit the roof as he describes it. He was really, really upset by getting this letter. He felt that he'd been working so hard for this property for so many years and all of a sudden it was just ripped away. So he started campaigning. He organised big protest marches. He went to see local MPs. He went to see local council. And pretty soon he essentially became the leader of a New South Wales-wide movement to oppose a lot of these new coastal policies. The New South Wales Coastal Alliance says up to 60,000 homes are affected. Pat Aiken from the New South Wales Coastal Alliance joins me on the line. This is the green dream, you know. Uh, threaten everyone with climate change and then start to take properties. You know, this is what they're after. They're after our land. And did it work? Lobbying like this from people like Pat Aiken, was it effective? Uh, Yes. I'd say it was in lots of coastal communities around Australia. There was this backlash to state governments and local councils. The state government is a laughingstock on the mid-north coast when they talk about immediate and intolerable risk. There are people who've lived there all their lives who say absolutely nothing has changed. If anything... Uh, we've got more sand here than we did before. Well, the problem with the state government is they're listening to the Greens that they've incorporated into the highest levels of um, the bureaucracy. Well, look... Crazy stuff. You keep on fighting the good fight, Pat, and we'll stay in touch. Thanks for your time. Thanks very much. At least three state governments, Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria, basically took a step backwards. They said it was too hard. It looked different in various states and various jurisdictions. The particular thing that New South Wales did is the state government said, right, so whereas in the past we had this statewide planning benchmarks where we said to the entire state, every coastal council, you need to plan for these benchmarks that are accepted international science, they then stepped back and said, okay, local councils can do that now. Every local council on the coast has to do their own planning and can decide their own planning benchmarks. So where previous plans were based on international science, now the state government is saying to councils, you can set your own benchmarks for sea level rise and you can pick the figure that you want. Yes. The state government justified it by saying, look, you know, regional communities can find their own regional solutions. I mean, but essentially it was the handing over of a political hot potato to local councils. And Brett, in your mind, the issue here. Is it with local governments being responsible for setting these sea level benchmarks because they're vulnerable to pushback from from property owners, from developers? Yes. 
once that uh, happens, then essentially we have a series of councils of varying capabilities open to various types of influence, various types of lobbying, and to change their development processes. So it just becomes a much more complex situation to deal with, a lot more scope for influence and lots of local agendas. I mean, Brett, I find this kind of remarkable. You've got local councils forming their own views about climate science and allowed to set planning approvals based on that. Mm. And I guess what I saw a lot in my time is that the state government increasingly flipped lots of responsibilities for various quite contentious issues at times down to the local government level and uh, whilst it might get it off the agenda, if you like, for the state government, it puts it fairly and squarely onto the agenda for the local government and they just haven't got the uh, resources or capabilities and oftentimes the willingness to be able to grapple with these sorts of issues that are being thrust upon them. So there is this push and pull between the small number of property owners now against a wider view, and it's a science-backed view, that we actually do need to plan for the future and we do need to take this into account. And that essentially comes to a head in this meeting in 2015 at Shoalhaven City Council. Tomorrow, we look at how American lobby groups got involved and shaped Australia's coastline in opposition to climate science. Join Richard Tognetti and the ACO for a bold and intrepid 2022. Featuring a live national concert season, their acclaimed on-demand film series ACO Studio Casts and exciting programs from their new home in Sydney's Walsh Bay. Subscriptions now on sale at aco.com.au. Sydney Dance Company explodes on stage with Momenta. This world premiere by acclaimed choreographer Raphael Bonicella is unmissable contemporary dance. Strictly limited season from the 28th of May to the 8th of June. Book now at sydneydancecompany.com. Elsewhere in the news, serial killer Ivan Milat has died in prison after being diagnosed with terminal cancer. He was 74. Milat was convicted of murdering seven hitchhikers, although he maintained his innocence throughout his life. Speculation continues that he was responsible for other murders, although he was never tried for these. And The Guardian reports that the Australian government has granted a $20 million contract to a phosphate mining company to maintain the Christmas Island Detention Centre. The centre currently holds four people, and the three-year contract will provide for gardeners and cleaners at the centre, but not guards or other services, which will be provided by services giant Serco. This episode of 7am was produced in part by Elle Marsh in a position supported by a grant from the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas. I'm Elizabeth Kulas. See you Tuesday. <laughs>